0: to the Working with India podcast, conversations to help cross-cultural managers deepen their understanding of India, produced by learningindia.in. Today's episode completes one year of this podcast, and we celebrate by talking with Mumbai's whiskey lady, Carissa Hickman. Carissa has lived in India since 1995 and has her own consulting firm. Carissa is going to share with us why some things take forever in India and other things slide by quickly what suggesting really means in the Western context, and why you might need two bank cards in India. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the Working With India podcast. Today we have an extremely special guest, Carissa Hickling is with us today. Hello, Carissa. Hello, Neil. Uh, today represents our 12th episode, so this completes our, our first year of the Working With India, so it's, it's very exciting to have you on for this episode. You. Yeah. So, Chris, give a little bit of background about who you are, where you're from. Um, what can we learn about you?
1: Ah, well, I'm actually originally from the Canadian Prairies. I was born in Winnipeg and um, lived well the the first twenty uh, odd years of my life in Canada. And uh have a strange background, and I guess that's one of the themes in my life is having an eclectic range of things from a professional theater degree to academics to getting involved in financial services, uh, loving, obviously, music, art, theater, reading, uh, writing, and then a bit of whiskey, too.
0: <laughs> well, okay, so we don't have so much time to explore everything that you do, um, but uh, we are mostly interested in hearing, you know, you know, we're talking about working with India. So what was your first exposure to India?
1: I've actually got three firsts. The first exposure was growing up with friends from India, uh, many of whom I'm still in touch with, including even our neighbor across the street. Uh, First trip to India was in 1990. And there's a program called Shastri Indo-Canadian Institute Summer Study Abroad Program. So I got a fresh course into life in India, um, from one end of the country to the other.
2: Now so. I, have,
0: I have to ask, was that called uh, Sikhi Sap? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, um, we would call it Sikhi, but we wouldn't call it Sap. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but it was it was really remarkable, i mean it was from emphasis to elevat, and and uh you know it was absolutely remarkable the kind of things that we were introduced to so nice.
2: uh, it
1: was it was i think for me that was sort of a life changing uh, opportunity to sort of discover india in that way and then the first time i actually lived lived in india was uh, from january ninety five to october nineteen ninety six and that was Coming back again with Sikhi, uh, and that was doing research on my thesis, as well as also studying Hindi. That was based in Delhi.
0: Nice. So you are a Hindi speaker
1: then?
0: Wonderful. I have no idea because we're here in the south. (laughs) We don't like Hindi down here. So um, so you've been in India for a long time off and on, um, obviously for the last you know, 20 years uh, quite consistently. What is it that you do here? Um, what uh, Can you kind of summarize your role as a uh, professional?
1: It's, it's evolved over the years uh, and it, it's interesting. It's like you know, having all these building blocks kind of coming into place and, and creating uh, an, an amazing situation that I'm in right now. So I currently run my own consulting firm. And it's really focused around enhancing business performance through people Uh, that could be supporting setting up or revamping recruitment processes, building an academy, uh, some specific training interventions, projects, things like that. And it's really come from a culmination of some of the experiences I've been lucky to have here. Uh, It is in the financial services for the most part. And that's because I first started with and Life Insurance, where I was the training head moved on to Watson Wyatt as the practice leader for India's distribution consulting practice, and then continued uh, with Mercer, uh, heading up their academy for all of Asia Pacific. Hmm. So, yeah, and then going on my own as well, it's it's, uh, tremendously liberating, um, but it's also challenging. Um, And I guess one of the things that I've been really fortunate is I'm not just doing it on my own i do it in association with a number of other professionals and mm-hmm. also have specific tie-ups with companies uh, around the solutions that they offer that becomes relevant for my clients so that's actually taken me down the path of technology and i consider myself a very untechy person but i am fascinated by how technology and digital solutions can actually enable things in a market as challenging as India where reaching the last mile in a less than ideally connected um, environment is possible
0: yeah that's that sounds very fascinating I'm exciting to get a little deeper into this in the conversation but I do want to pick up on one thing you said you said you are you said a little bit of a whiskey lady too what do you mean by that
1: <laughs> well it, it, it Okay, I got to be honest. So my parents have a wine cellar and I grew up with really good wine and I came to India, let's just say in 1990 the wine here was completely undrinkable. <laughs> um, it it has improved slightly. Uh however, and you could also say this is part of the professional context too is as I've had some really quite wonderful individuals uh, who we'd sit down and we'd have a business meeting and it'd be in the evening with the managing director and they'd say, hey, do you want to have a whiskey? And I'd be like, sure. And they would start sharing their passion with me. And then I started sort of going on my own journey of discovery and then some close friends in Bombay about four and a half years ago, we started our own whiskey tasting club and we've been terribly serious about it because we <laughs> religiously once a month and we do blind tastings and we've now gotten to the stage where we rotate hosting and we will plan a year in advance to curate our evening experience. So wow. my last one I, I hosted, I had a Japanese theme and I literally flew to Tokyo and I literally picked up whiskeys you could not buy anywhere else and I had an entire Japanese themed evening catered by a friend with some fabulous uh, food as well and it was sort of introducing a whole experience sharing it exploring discovering.
0: Nice nice well, that sounds like a lot of fun I'm sure after this podcast you're going to get a lot of invitations to
1: uh... <laughs> Yeah well I've also started up a whiskey ladies club here in uh, Mumbai as well and, and that one we're, we're actually doing a combination of Self-hosting, where different people bring bottles, and then, frankly speaking, we're getting opportunities to uh, show up at functions that are being organized by distilleries and promoters, and we're just like, well, hey, every once in a while, we don't mind uh, showing up for those as well. Yeah. So it's fun.
0: Now, I want to pick up on one thing you said about, you know, going out, uh, in the evenings, meeting with these managing directors, very high level people, um, in yeah. Indian organizations specifically. Yeah. You, you probably have a lot of chance to interact with these people, to get to know them. Uh, given your global exposure, what, um, what do you notice about them compared to people from other countries? Say you're talking to somebody who really hasn't got out of their own home culture. They want to know, you know what's, what's the difference? Between an Indian and someone from or from Singapore from Japan, from Canada, uh, when it, at that high level, is there really any difference or, or can you spot you know somebody who is from India pretty easily
1: well it, I, I'll actually say that um, there isn't one thing there's I, I can't stereotype this, but what I can share is that um, at that level, a lot of people that I interact with in India are already quite globalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so one of the things that motivates them to reach out to me is because I am working in so many other markets uh, across Asia Pacific, so they're always interested in cross-fertilizing. But they also, once you get to managing director level, particularly with companies that have some kind of an international linkage, they are themselves also traveling to all of these different markets. And so we're sometimes exchanging notes rather than exposing new Mm -hmm where i'll share a difference and and this perhaps is sort of the mumbai versus and western india versus south india is when i'm looking at interacting with managing directors and even at you know shareholder levels for companies that are based in south india that exposure is sometimes less Mm -hmm. and so there is a different kind of fascination with what's happening outside of india which which can actually be really interesting because They'll ask great right questions that um, go past the preconceived notions. And there's there's this, and I don't want to call it naivety. I actually think it's quite smart um, to be open to seeing what works in other places and think through what could be adapted here. And, and I do see that that's often an element in the conversations I have. In fact, I'll often tell people that, listen, as a foreigner, you have an advantage because you will be from a curiosity perspective, invited quite easily once. So in other words, I can have access to people at very senior levels relatively easier in India than I would, say, in Canada. However, you will not be invited back (laughs) (laughs) if you cannot actually add value and deliver consistently for an appropriate price point. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You're dealing with some quite um, savvy Professionals who are very focused on on doing um, good business. Yeah,
0: great, great. Well, that's uh, I think that's a really good perspective to have because know a lot of people are talking with people at that level. So it's nice to know what to expect before they get there. Now, um, what are some of the you know frequent challenges you you find yourself facing when you're in India that uh, that still you know after so many years <laughs> uh, become a frustration for you?
1: Uh, well I, I think um you know it's it's the contradiction. It's the fact that um what worked today won't work tomorrow. Um things can change and uh I mean I think part of it also is is that um well I'll give one example actually around the contradiction. So in the insurance industry when it started to open up in India, you would have um And these are very serious plans with a lot of money involved. And you would have a whole set of assumptions around when the break-even point would be, um, when it would start to really become profitable and you could uh, look at IPOs. Now, (laughs) the rule book kept changing and consistently from an expanding business, it's been sort of beaten down by the regulator because whatever you assumed in terms of the way in which you could price products, the way in which you could market products, the way in which you could sell products, the rule book keeps changing, and and so it can be a little frustrating because when you're accountable to shareholders outside of India,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you try to sort of say, "Well, they just changed the rules again,"
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it sounds like an excuse, but that that is the reality here. And and sometimes you know there's there's difficult decisions that need to be made, which you know may mean in some cases withdrawing from the market. It may mean Um, holding on longer and simply having to educate, um, your team at the global level that this is just one of the consequences of doing business in India. Um, you know, and, and in a simpler thing, I mean, I think, you know, if I look at it on the everyday, um, there, there are some things that should be really, really simple and can be incredibly time consuming and complex. Um, and uh, I'll actually give a good example for that. So when you're working in India, you need to contribute to a provident fund. Mm-hmm. It's like your retirement fund. And um, it is mandatory for foreigners in India. And uh, I'll give an example of one company a colleague and I worked at together many years ago. It actually took him five years to withdraw his provident fund. And the problem was is that he has a first, middle, and last name. Mm-hmm. And when his Provident Fund was registered by the company we were working for, they used just his first and last name. And this is something that I do as well. I don't use my middle name professionally. It's on my passport. It's on one bank account. But I actually have a second bank account where my middle name is not used. I have a second PAN card, which is a uh, like your social insurance number that you need to have for filing taxes. Mm-hmm. One that has my middle name and one that does not have my middle name. Mm-hmm. Because That's was, smart. Yeah. <laughs> because, well, I've been burned. I mean, I've, I've had challenges where I couldn't withdraw mutual funds because it didn't have my middle name and it did have my middle name. Um, and so this is what took this ex-colleague five years is he literally had to go out and apply for a PAN card without his middle name, open a bank account without his middle name, just to be able to get the proceeds of his provident fund redeemed. Wow! (laughs) So it took five years, and he tried to sort of say, look, I really am the same person. I just don't use my middle name in this, and they didn't include my middle name when they set up my provident fund. Um, but that would be an example of something that it should be relatively simple to just sort of say, I'd like to redeem my Provident Fund. I'm no longer working in India. Um, could you just give me my money? Yeah. You know? <laughs> but it's five years. Um, wow. Whereas other things can actually be, you know, that, that would take a long time. Uh, and uh, and I can give two examples there. I mean, one was one company I was working with, we were looking at doing an acquisition in India. And uh, the Indian partner that we were looking at setting up a JV with in order to do this acquisition, they seemed slower moving at first. But once they made a decision, they were like, boom, let's do it now. Mm -hmm. Whereas for us, um, we then, once they said yes, had to get into the global decision making process of our organization And that dragged on and on and on until actually the Indian partner just came back saying, look, I'm so sorry. We're we're just going to have to go somewhere else. Because once we made the decision, we actually expected to execute it like in weeks, (laughs) not in months and months and months. Um, And and I think that's the thing is that, uh, you know, even if there's a lot of multiple stakeholders involved, once you've got the right decision maker in India saying yes, things move really rapidly and and I've even had a situation where one consulting project that I was looking at and um I had a lot of other people this is when I was with a global consulting firm a lot of other people saying look Carissa there is no way you're going to get this like I don't even understand why you're bothering to meet with these people you know this organization's having a lot of challenges right now The decision won't be just made in India. You're going to need regional and global approval. It's just too complicated. Walk away.
2: Mm.
1: And whereas my instincts told me that, look, I've got the CEO believing in this. I've got the CEO believing in this. I've got the channel partner for which we were going to do a diagnostic exercise fully committed to it. The least that I can do is also have that same faith and In fact, from the point when we did the commercial discussions actually over the phone, they said, okay, yeah, we agree to that. The next day I sent in the official proposal. The team, the leadership team actually flew to New York to say, you will approve this because this is necessary. And if you expect us to be able to deliver some business in the next period of time with all of the challenges we're facing and don't sign off on this, then we're gonna have a problem. And it actually got approved I think it was under a month. Wow. And and it was because of that level of focus, commitment, and they just said, we don't care what the obstacles were. They, mm-hmm. they were just, we are going to have this, and we are going to do this. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I think that's one of the things that's remarkable about India, is that complicated things with the right will can just forget what obstacles there are. They will, they will just be blasted away. And if you think, but, you know, it's sort of like you've got one of the gods or goddesses on your side and they are going to just simply blast through every obstacle because you've got a believer.
0: Yeah. Wow. I had a, a friend that gave a quote uh, that said that India is a place where the the possible is impossible and the impossible is possible. Agreed. Yeah.
1: Completely agreed.
0: <laughs> Definitely. Th- those are great stories and examples to to just think about and ponder. I'm still trying to figure out like how Why that happens you know what what would you attribute that to the the places where the bureaucracy comes into something that should be so simple and yet things can get done so fast? Do you have any kind of just philosophical ramblings about uh, why that is
1: <laughs> oh i I have some very clear ideas on it, and I think one of it is because you have to appreciate that India is a very hierarchical society mm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, bureaucracy is sometimes the excuse given when someone doesn't want to take responsibility Mm -hmm. because they're afraid that if they get it wrong, they'll get in trouble. So, you know, a nonsensical rule like you can clearly see that my name is Carissa Lynn Hickling. You can clearly see that I have documentation that uses only Carissa Hickling, but they will not sign off on releasing a provident fund without having exact documentation such as your PAN card, your bank account, including your checkbook, having Carissa hickling because they're afraid that they're going to get in trouble. And if they stick their neck out to do this, um, there may be a consequence to them Mm -hmm. later. Whereas if you look at um, the the decision-making levels, the real decision, so in other words, bureaucracy is a lot of little people trying to follow the rules as they best interpret it, sometimes in some very convoluted, contradictory ways. Mm -hmm. It becomes very person-dependent. But that's what they've been doing. Therefore, that's what they're used to doing. And anything outside of that is uncomfortable. Versus at a a decision-maker level, particularly when you're leading a company, because you have... (laughs) you know, an entire hierarchy that that passes the responsibility for sometimes simple decisions up higher and higher and higher, you get accustomed to just making a decision. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why you are in that role, Mm -hmm. is because you will stick your neck out, you will make that call, and you will stand by it. And so it also means that once you're at that level, and I think particularly I look at public sector companies, if the managing director says x it doesn't matter like people will jump to attention and make that happen as they interpret it you know immediately because sir has said
2: <laughs> yeah yep.
0: no that sounds right i mean uh, that's what i i talk about a lot about just the 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 power plays that go on and yeah how on one hand, that can make things extremely slow. On the other hand, that can make things extremely fast. Uh, if, like you said, if you have the right people in your corner that really believe in what you're saying, then it's going to go through amazingly fast because they want it done and they have an, an army of people who are ready to, to make that happen.
2: I um, yeah. yeah.
0: Great. Well, let's, uh, let's change the topic just a little bit. Um, uh, speaking of, Of that, I mean, you come from Canada, known for being a very collaborative style, uh, culture, um, which I would assume would be kind of your work style. Uh, when you're here on the other side of the world, in Asia, particularly in India, Um, that's collaborative style can definitely still work in some circles, but, uh, like we just talked about, there are these power places, these hierarchies, and it's, it's difficult to make that happen. Have you had to adapt yourself in any way?
1: (laughs) Yes. And in fact, because I'm not restricted to working only in India, I've had to go through sort of multiple adaptations. of <laughs> so I I remember and and this this would have been some of my early days in the insurance industry back in 2003 and you know I came in all happy and used to having a very collaborative approach to problem solving and making things happen and I I found myself with a small team responsible for third party distribution training at an insurance company mm-hmm. and We needed to prepare on a regular basis um, a management information. They call it MIS, but basically it's your report. It's your report that basically confirms what you've done, how it's been done, who it's for, etc. And this should have been simple. And I also had some very, I thought, modest ideas around what were the analytics that interested me to be able to help us communicate effectively with our business partners through whom we were selling insurance. And um, I had a half-time person that was to support the administration for the entire team across India. And it didn't seem to matter what I did. I would keep asking him. I would keep suggesting. He would send me something that would just be rubbish. And I would sort of say, well, you know, it would be really nice if you could try this and, you know what else do you think might help here? And, you know, and I was asking it all in a very sort of fuzzy thing. And and it, it's interesting because later, a, a very dear friend who's now managing director of another insurance company, she said, when I first met Westerners, the suggestion is code for I want you to do <laughs> <laughs> And she said, you know, but they are open to an alternative if you can give a good reason. <laughs> you know, she said, but, but really what you needed to do was, you know, we needed to teach our Western bosses that, you know, suggestions are not code for, I want you to do this. You just tell us, I want you to do this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's great. And, and so, um, that was just it is that I had another, and you're talking about the power plays and, and, and I've mentioned hierarchies. So in that particular case, I, I actually had, um, one of the other trainers that was based in the same location as the halftime admin person, and I and I finally said to her, like, going, help me out here. Like, I'm I'm at my wit's end. I just want A B C. Can you can you find a way to make it happen? And you know, she literally did the equivalent of marching over, saying, do A B C.
2: <laughs>
1: Voila. <laughs> you know I got a b c and and so it it taught me that sometimes and and this comes back to the whole thing of decision making you know I took the responsibility for saying the report should look like a b c, and it needs to have components of one, two, three, mm-hmm. and once that was clearly articulated. Literally for years, that report got replicated on time. <laughs>
2: yeah, nice.
1: Um, and it, it seems like a small thing, but it, it actually, to me, was very indicative of learning that my way of saying I'd like to see something along these lines needed to be very crisp, clear, one, two, three.
0: Yeah. I, I think the, the point you brought up especially is... It's a good example to show how the idea of direct and indirect communication is a bit of a misnomer when it comes to, you know, traditional saying says, okay, in, in, in Asia and in India, people are indirect and in the West, people are direct. But the, that example you gave is a perfect one just to show that, you know, we are uh, coming from North America it can be extremely indirect. Um, yeah. when we're giving these kind of suggestions, would you please? What do you think about this? When, like you said, it is code. It's, it's code for, you should do this unless you have a really good reason not to. Correct. Um, So, yeah, I think that's a a great example of that uh, dynamic that exists there too.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll actually share one other element, and and I think this is one thing that's important because now I'm learning to switch modes. And so when I first started working with um, Mercer, which was an Asia-Pacific role based out of Singapore, and yet they very kindly, um, you know, indulged me and let me unpack my bags in Mumbai, uh, I had to unlearn that directive style, Hmm. because that had started to become ingrained. And uh, particularly when I started working uh, much more in Indonesia, and so the last couple of years, I've I've had some longer term assignments that have been over sort of a nine month period Mm -hmm. in Indonesia. And There, I I actually grabbed hold of a friend who had both worked in India and is originally from Indonesia, and I I sort of said, look, help me out here before I screw things up, (laughs) because I know enough to know that how I would approach something in India is different than how I would approach it in Singapore how would I get things done here in Indonesia when I face these kinds of obstacles? And I, I could see these obstacles starting to form. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I grabbed her and I said, you know, help me out. And, and she said, that's actually what you do is, is rather than tell people, um, rather than sort of say, why isn't this getting done and getting into sort of the, the uh, unfortunately, there's a fair bit of dressing down um, that happens in India, but she said, don't do any of that. She said, you cannot um, directly get after someone for not doing what they were supposed to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: She said, instead, you have to step back and say, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm really sorry to come to you with this and I really need your help. I'm, I'm struggling here because we know we need to get this done and I, c- I can tell that there's, there's some kind of a challenge and, you know, I, I really need your help to be able to figure this out. And she said, by you taking on that responsibility for the problem, when actually Mm -hmm. the other person's just not doing their job and you don't understand what the reason is, you're more likely to have them then open up and share what the obstacle is Mm -hmm. to then be able to jointly look at how it can be overcome. And and I found that it was it was like magic <laughs> <You know? laughs> when I would when I would come to someone saying, "Look, I, I I'm I'm struggling here." So when I would sort of be very very humble and and take responsibility for my inadequacies, then magic things would happen. And and I'm not saying doing this in an insincere way. I, I actually started to realize that in fact, in some cases, it was my inadequacy in not immediately understanding that. They couldn't say no to this, but they couldn't say yes, and I couldn't figure out the reason, so I couldn't come up with alternate directions to go. Hmm. Well
0: yeah that I think that that exposure you have to so many different types of cultures uh, because you know like, there is no Asian culture it's it's so many no. uh, different types of things it's really a, a great advantage to be able to say that but like you said it takes a lot of code switching it takes a lot of okay as soon as you step off the airport you know check the map see where you are and then <laughs> respond respond appropriately right yeah so uh, just on a, on a personal level or even professionally you know, what what keeps you happy here what uh, what what makes you call Mumbai home yeah um, what, uh, what, what really drives you to, to really enjoy life here?
1: There, there's a lot of things. And I think um, anywhere in the world that you are, it's, it's the people, it's the connections that you have, it's, it's the, you know, can you live your everyday life in a way that works for you? And for whatever reason, I, I've been able to create my own happy reality here. And, and I think that's one of the joys is that uh, because I'm now running my own show, Uh, I have a lot of flexibility, a lot of choice around things. I also work a lot, and Mm -hmm. that's part of it too. But what it does mean is that I can have a lot more blended approach to blurring the lines between personal and professional. And, you know, we have a fairly active social life. My partner is an actor, and um, what, what that also means is often I get windows into some pretty amazing interesting worlds and <laughs> to the point where it's sometimes quite extraordinary and 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 you know one of the reasons I'd started a blog years ago everyday asia was was just because my everyday reality would seem very exotic to mm-hmm. friends back in Canada or even in some of the other countries where I would work on a regular basis and that's what keeps it you know, always interesting for me. Um, I'm, I'm really blessed to, to know some amazing people and, and to have a life here that I find very enriching.
0: Nice. Well, great. Um, why don't you close up our time here with just two tips you would give to people who are kind of at that beginning phase of their journey? Obviously that was a long time ago for you. Um, (laughs) so uh, imagine talking to yourself 25 years ago, um, what would you may have done differently or what are just two things you can tell somebody at that starting place that would really suit them well?
1: Uh, okay. So so actually one is, um, in, in a funny way, there's, there's this concept called Jugad, which is like a, a temporary fix mm-hmm. and walking into this country, you look at it and think, Oh my God, this is a disaster about to happen. It's <laughs> unsafe. It's, How can you how can you keep this machine working when it's, you know, being held together by a twist tie or, you know, whatever it may be. But but I mean, sometimes these temporary fixes can actually that's how things function. And it may not seem safe or sensible on the surface. But but sometimes these these short term ways of making things work is actually how things get done. And, and so, you know, maybe accept a little bit of that. And, and then if it's really important to you to have a longer term solution, then find ways of making that happen, but be a little patient. And I think the other thing also is, I talked earlier about sort of a blending of the personal and professional. I, I now embrace that. I now love that. That's, that's part of what I enjoy about here is that you go to a party and you always go with your business cards because you never know <laughs> when you, you meet someone and you strike up a conversation and suddenly you find something that uh, is really in sync. And um, then you discover by pure accident that you actually have a professional connect. But similarly, you know, on the professional level, many of the individuals, particularly at senior levels, that I have just such wonderful, valuable friendships came because you crossed the line from purely being in a professional context to starting to socialize and, and and expose the personal side so if I reflect back in Canada it was like I had my work friends <laughs> and I had my friend friends yep. my personal yep. friends whereas here those, those lines blur and it may seem a bit strange when you have somebody professionally asking you what would be interpreted as personal questions. Mm-hmm. But if you're open to that, uh, you may find that actually it's it's not only okay; it it creates new avenues uh, and and really new relationships that that can be fantastic.
0: Yeah, I I, I love that aspect of it too. And so I have a follow up question to that: is that have you ever had a chance to go back to some of your uh, Canadian North American friends um, and and business colleagues and. I don't know how much you, you travel back to that side of the world, but uh, tried kind of the same things you've learned here, over there, and if you found them to still work, or you find people to butt against that?
1: <laughs> well, I have to admit that, um, yes, I do go back to Canada. Uh, typically, it's once a year, sometimes only once every two years. Um, I've not really worked in Canada since 2003. However, um, there, there are individuals that I used to work with um, that I met through work contexts that I've continued to keep in touch with and really enjoy when there is a chance to catch up there. And in fact, you know, one of my ex-bosses, which was the first financial services company I got involved with in Canada, I remember at one point I was considering a move back to Canada. And in fact, he was potentially looking at an employment environment for me, and it was a really good one, and then he stopped and he said, look, before we jump to anything, you know, tell me a bit more about your life in India and what you're doing there and what you're doing in Asia, and and so I started to tell him, and I started to share sort of the growth trajectory that I've had here, and he just sort of said, look, you know, selfishly, I'd kind of like you to take this job because, you know, it would be good for me, Mm -hmm. but... I actually want to rescind these discussions because you would be insane to leave being involved in a market that's that dynamic, that has that much kind of activity. And you said frankly that is where the growth is going to happen. It, it's going to be increasingly slow or challenging in in established markets. So, go girl, you know. And I was just like, "Wow, okay." So this is again somebody that I knew purely professionally once upon a time in in the '90s. You know, giving me in some senses professional, but also personal by saying, look, you, you've got just way too much good happening over there. Don't move back. Yeah. Keep moving forward. And, and, and that to me was advice that I, obviously I've, I've kept, you know, I, I listened to rather, uh, because I'm still here so many years later.
0: Nice. That's great. Well, um, I know you have a couple of websites that, that people can find you out. Why don't you tell us about those a little bit?
1: Well, I'm a big believer in LinkedIn. Um, uh, I, I, quite consciously use it uh, as part of reinforcing a network of people that I meet along the way. So you can always find me on LinkedIn at uh, Carissa Hickling. Mm-hmm. I also have two blogs. One I mentioned earlier is called everydayasia.com. And that, yeah, I post it. It's purely personal. I mean, it's one of those ones where I'll, I'll post whatever happens to strike me uh, as interesting at that moment. Mm-hmm. And then I have another blog, which is called Whiskey Lady and uh, it's whiskey lady at word well whiskeylady.wordpress.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also have a Facebook page, Whiskey Lady in India and a Twitter handle WhiskeyLadyIn, Lady in in. Uh, and that's been kind of a fun one. That, in, a, in a strange way, that's the one that I nowadays post to most regularly because I'm part of two whiskey tasting clubs in Mumbai and uh, also regularly have interesting opportunities to interact with uh, distillers.
0: Nice. Well, great. I'll put all those in the show notes uh, so people can have access to those links. This has been a really fun conversation. I wish we could go longer. Um, Same deal. uh, Yeah, I'm sure we could find lots of other things to talk about, but I really appreciate you taking the time for uh, this podcast.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure.
0: All right. Have a great day. You too. This has been the Working with India podcast produced by learningindia.in. Please subscribe to the show to get new updates as soon as they're released. And as always, don't do India alone.